Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Vanity Fair. You don't want this case. I know you. What's that thing you say? Shit bowl? This is a shit bowl. It's my shit bowl. Hello, and welcome to Still Watching, a weekly television podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Richard Lawson. I'm Chris Murphy. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are here to discuss HBO's True Detective Night Country, Season 4, Part 2. Why are they naked? Doesn't make any sense. And later, Christopher Eccleston, who plays Captain Connolly, will be stopping by to talk about the case. But let's do a quick recap first. Liz Danvers fights to keep the case in Ennis. She brings the slab of frozen researchers to the local ice rink to thaw out while she awaits forensics. Five heads and uh, nine feet. The rest of them are buried. Danvers learns that researcher Raymond Clark was in a relationship with the murdered cold case victim, Annie Kay. And despite trying to fight it, Danvers and Navarro team up. What are you doing here? Well, you know Annie better than I can get from the files. And now it matters because it's a bunch of white men? You want in or you just want to go fuck yourself? The investigation leads them to a creepy trailer owned by Raymond Clark with pictures of Annie plastered on the walls. Yeah, that's her phone. I checked. It was not with her body. And as the bodies thaw, they discover Raymond Clark isn't there. He's alive. He's out there. All right, I have to ask. When the head moved and started screaming, did you guys scream? Obviously. 100%. It was the most grotesque, and the noise. Ugh. 
and yeah. the sludge in the, coming yeah. out. Yeah, and if you know, you know what it felt like. It felt like in Seven when the sloth guy wakes up in the bed all of a sudden because you because you assume he's dead. Um, I don't know medically how someone could survive being out in the cold like that for however well, many days if, it was. May, I guess if you're like in the middle, like ugh, closer yeah, to the center, yeah. you have your human blanket. Don't yes. they don't they freeze people? Isn't Walt Disney frozen in a cry- yeah. <laughs> cryogenic yeah. chamber right, somewhere? Right, exactly. <laughs> That's true. I mean, if we had any doubt that this was leaning on horror tropes th- this season, uh, they were quick, they were they were gone <laughs> after this moment because yes, it was and it's, terrifying. And it's yeah. also just like. This is a show we're talking. We're not talking about the ending yet of the episode, I guess. But like, this is a show that knows how to end on a cliffhanger that mm-hmm. is going to make you like it. it works as a week to week watch, but it's going to be really good as a binge. Yeah, I oh, I have like scary feelings. Do you feelings want to not talk you- about the corpses? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, I can. They- I can direct us in another direction. Sure. Um, which is, uh, did you guys? Did you guys catch who uh, Fiona Shaw's partner Travis is? Uh, no, I did not. His last name is Coley. He's Russ Cole's father. <gasps> what? That's the Easter egg. Oh, my God. So she she talks about Travis. I was like, oh, this is weird. And I think at some point she does say, like, that's the only thing that Travis Cole left me. Yeah, and she I was, does. Yeah. yeah. And she so I was Travis like, Cole. could that be? And so I looked it up. According to the first season of True Detective, Travis's Travis, in fact, is the name of Rust's father. Oh, and he wow. moved to Alaska after, like, getting all messed up in Vietnam and raised Rust out there. So we're all connected. So we're in the same it's universe. in the same universe. That's wild. Which is fun. That's cool. I, that is the kind of Easter eggy thing I do like. Yeah. Because you don't have to explain it much beyond that. It's just like. No, it doesn't, it doesn't really have any bearing on anything. It's right. just like a fun like nod. And well, and it's like uh, it's like the epigram that opened the first episode, yeah. which is like you look at it and it's some nonsense. And the like author of it is somebody you've never heard of. But you Google that name and it's the author of like the Yellow King. OK, so it comes um, back. Which is like another true detective. So, like, if you're looking for, like, little nods to the first season especially and, like, the earlier seasons of the show, like, you will find them. And I like that. I like that. It's so great that it's connected to both uh, the first season of True Detective and True Blood because Fiona Shaw is playing a witchy, (laughs) (laughs) scary woman. The whole first episode, I was like, that woman looks so familiar. Why do I know her? And I was like, oh, she was literally a witch on True Blood. Fiona Shaw stays working for HBO in shows that begin with True. It's not not Fleabag? That's your your main That's my main Fiona Shaw is definitely. True Blood. You didn't see her in Beckett's Happy Days with Bam several years ago? God damn. I she wish. Buried, I wish. Buried up to her neck in sand. She was quite good. Rose Aguinaldo um, gets around. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there was a part of me when when we have the scene with Navarro and Rose at her house. Have you seen the dead? When did that start? Miss Travis. But I know people who were born with it. And then, of course, the Zenis. It happens around here all the time. Rose seems to sort of not fit in with the rest of the community. She's a little bit, she seems to maybe a little wealthier. She seems m- more educated, perhaps. Like, I was kind of like, well, I don't know. This feels like sort of a TV device. Like, would mm-hmm. this person really live there? But then I was like, you know, I've been to Alaska two times. Yeah, and so? <laughs> talking to locals, there are a lot of weird people who end up in Alaska. There's some statistic. I think only one fifth of the population of Alaska was born there. Oh, that's so mm. interesting. And so, so and, it like yeah. it like attracts people who are looking for something. There's a great line in in Insomnia, which I mentioned last week, uh, where Maura Tierney, the great Maura Tierney, says like there are two kinds of people in Alaska: those who were born here and those kind of like fleeing something, mm. basically. And I feel like I, with that kind of context, I buy Rose as this like Travis and I ended up here for vague reasons that I'm not gonna really going to go into. But like, 
I prefer to be out here in the cold, far away from most civilization. Yeah, well, because that's where she can see dead people. <laughs> right, right, right. Which, is, which apparently is a regular occurrence for her. For every, yeah, 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 for her and everyone in Ennis. She seems really chill about yeah. it. Yeah, she does. You would think she would be maybe more upset. She's better at it than maybe some are. Yeah, there, this episode really, in I think really evocative ways, gets into a sort of collective consciousness of this town where there is, like, everyone sees things here. It's a really long night. Like, mm-hmm. even the dead get, you know, bored or whatever. Like, this community, or as Rose says, is located on sort of this line where the earth is splitting apart and, like, you know, which we talked about last week, like, climate change, that's certainly part of it. Like, I don't know. I just found this episode so evocative in how it it really um, drew us even further into this, the place. Well, to that point, too, what you just said about Alaska, you know, most of the people are transplants. I mean, yeah. it goes back to sort of America's greatest sin, the original sin of, you know, native land, white people taking native land. All the, they, like, mm-hmm. Ennis has been here long, but these natives have been here longer. Yeah. And people. whatever's in the permafrost has been it's there even longer. longer. And it's going to be revealed over the course as it melts, as we melt down to, you know, the original sin. I think it's just, uh, you know, these ghosts are coming. They're coming for for all yeah. of these people. Yeah, and and a lot of these people probably deserve it. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. Yeah. And you know who deserves it the most? Hank. And yeah. I'm so I. Yeah. He, he <laughs> might not have killed everyone in Salal, but he did yeah. slap his son. And I'm I was so mad when that happened. What about what do you make of his uh, mail order bride? Does I, that like endear you, endear him to you at all? Because like that's so sad. It's so it's ninety so day fiance. It's so ninety day fiance. And I. But it's gonna go great, I think. <laughs> The way she was texting and him sending her money, it's definitely a good yeah, idea. That's how that works. It's great. It's, yeah. yeah. I you mean, know, I, she just probably needs it so that she can get on a plane and come meet him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And her mother, in, too. In this tiny, horrid town in Alaska. <laughs> she definitely wants to flee Russia to go there yeah. with her mother well, and You town. can see Russia from your house in Alaska. <laughs> true, it's, it's not true. so far. That has been it's true. It's true. I can't wait for his comeuppance. I don't know how it will happen, but I don't know. I didn't. I got weird vibes from him in the first episode, but this really cemented, oh, he's a re- he's a bad guy. And and Leah says something about it where she's like, he's a monster or something, or like, so there's a history of yeah. this, clearly. Mm. I think my favorite part of this episode is that, because I, I was a diehard Lost fan, even though it broke my heart at the end. I love a creepy symbol, mm. <laughs> you know? Well, we got it in the first episode when Jody is standing in the middle of the spiral when she's yeah. putting oh, all— that's she's right, She's standing yeah. dead center in the spiral, and I was like, that's a weird way to put all those photos of yeah. all the cases, and then we see it over and over and over again this episode. So it's on one guy's forehead, right? Mm-hmm. We later learned that one of the scientists, Clark, got it tattooed— it's on the ceiling of this mysterious, pardon my French, fuck trailer. As <laughs> <laughs> a fuck trailer. Um, and, and we should, not to not to be the season one police, but we should note that this spiral also has a history in the franchise. It's uh, it's the symbol of, like, the pedophile cult. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. Hello, right. you're really good at this. Right. <laughs> you, you remember Which, a lot. I, I talked to Isola. Right. That is I, I she cannot stress that enough. Should, I, I, some I, of these connections, she did help. <laughs> okay. I, I feel like this season would argue that the pedophile cult co-opted a symbol that has different meaning for these people. Which is right? a really yeah. fun twist on yeah, it. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Uh, because, you know, uh, Rose says, like, it's this symbol is really old. It's older than, uh, mm. you know, e- e- older than the ice kind of thing. And, and yeah, mm-hmm. it speaks to the themes if it then got, like, as you said, co-opted by these people that corrupted its meaning and then mm-hmm. turned it into, yeah. Right. Took over it. Yeah, right. to, took over it. And it was on Annie. We have to say it was on Annie Kay's mm-hmm. shoulder. That which Right. So this, yeah, the because this episode really establishes that Annie Kay and this guy Clark, even though the researchers were mostly thought to be complete recluses who didn't talk to the house cleaners, you know, mm-hmm. that at least one of them did venture out into the world enough to meet 
a young woman in town and begin a relationship. And take or her some, back yeah. to his fuck trailer. His yeah. fuck trailer. His fuck trailer. That he bought from some asshole God, minor guy. It was yeah. so, I don't know if anyone else has seen it, it was so Mother God. It was so Love Has Won, <laughs> the cult. And, like, yeah. and then you see like the, the body like in the trailer, like yeah. made out of twine or what. I was like, ooh. That's so creepy. So creepy. <laughs> that area was called The Nook, was it? The Nook. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That was a little kind of funny. The device like, where would you keep a secret here? The Nook. And she didn't <laughs> eat her pancakes. She just, yeah. you know, That her yeah. nice bath taken boyfriend <laughs> made for her. Man, there's something, something happening there. Just, just let him love you. <laughs> I know, I know. Let him in. <laughs> um, yeah, so the, the sex that we get in this episode is not of the, like, uh, not not the fun variety. No, I mean, well, that and was Dan- another Danvers twist. Is, Danvers' Danvers's uh, sex life is a fun uh, area. Uh, not to be to this explore. way, but she do be getting around. It seems. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah, it's a small town. I guess that there's a limited number of men in their fifties. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, or or younger. Yeah. Um, I think it's funny that it's a little come up and to to the the head the mean head of the mind that she's like with her, her husband so yeah. Uh, yeah. who teaches what science at the, at the high school yeah that, yeah. No, he's, yeah the science teacher the geology uh, the line guy. if you wanted English you should have fucked the English teacher <laughs> right a right. plus right that was great so, and then and the teacher he he um expands another mystery that of of many we have on this show uh, where we didn't really know in the first episode what these scientists were doing and he's now saying this teacher is basically saying oh if they're crackpot research actual or you know experiments actually panned out they could like cure most diseases so this is like very significant and almost kind of drills to the core of like what mortality is to the Mm -hmm. core i'm glad you said that did you notice that he was teaching about the earth's core and it was like Mm. a bunch of circles it looked like a spiral the Mm. lesson that he was teaching and it was like going the mantle it's all connected (laughs) i'm like there's there was a hint there there's a clue yeah knowing knowing that the scientists are kind of you know there it seems like they're they're playing god in a way and that also feels it feels like we're kind of moving toward a frankenstein kind of subplot there which is you know and Frankenstein ends on the ice, so it doesn't right. seem doesn't seem coincidental. But yeah, are they flying? Are they reaching too far? Like, are they doing are they doing something that science should not do? Are they yeah. disturbing the natural order? And who are the they using order? to do that? Who are yes. they? Yeah, yeah, they could be using uh, like pe- in the name of curing cancer. Like, what are they do? Like, do the their ends justify their means? Not to go full, you know, Tuskegee science mm-hmm. experiment, but it could be something like that, where there these white men are playing with the brown people's lives and using mm-hmm. them to do their crazy, fucked up, horrific experiments. Yeah, that could be definitely. I could see that being part of the narrative or where this goes. Oh, for sure, because it's been made clear that. Unlike other research stations, which swap people out and that, you know, people come and go, these guys were really holed up there. They're at Willy you know, Wonka's chocolate factory. Yeah, right. Exactly. No one goes in, no one comes out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that it, it's been clear to me since the first episode that these scientists were up to something bad mm-hmm. because I don't think they were like the. I mean, you were like, that sandwich doesn't look good. That sandwich doesn't look good. <laughs> no, it just, there was, there's just, I mean, I think it's like the idea of the season. This fourth season of True Detective being about a woman's perspective, you know, in the first scene of the first episode, this guy saying she's awake and then they all end up dead. It's like they did something bad to a woman. Yeah. (laughs) Well, right. Knowing that and I guess we're not we're not in predictions land yet, but like knowing that Clark was involved with Annie Kay and knowing that the person who murders 
the woman is usually the boyfriend. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, and knowing that reason. Clark is alive, <laughs> the well, twist at the end, which what is we think, wild. which is wild. It's like when they were it's like, hard to count the bodies when they're all frozen together, let's I, say. I feel like a silly little idiot because I was completely not ready for that twist. I was like, okay, of course, all the people at Salal were all frozen together, but of course, there's one yep, missing. Also, also didn't see it coming. Did not see it coming. A good twist. A good, honest to God twist. <clears throat> and yeah, clearly he knows something. Well, he's not letting on because we don't even know where we don't, he is. We don't know where he is, yeah. but he's somewhere. He's the key. He is the key. He's he's definitely somewhere out there, and he's not in his fuck hut or fuck trailer. <laughs> what do we think about the introduction of this kind of foil for Danvers in in Captain Connolly, the uh, Christopher Eccleston character? They're obviously involved in a sort of ongoing thing, but also antagonistic professionally. Like, does that feel like a, a device, or like, do, I don't know, does he does he fit into this ecosystem for you guys? I like knowing how she got there because Ennis, yeah. Alaska is so random so it mm. does make sense that it was like well you were in Anchorage and I sent you away because you fuck. You, we don't know exactly what she mm. did probably from fucking something probably from fucking yeah, yeah, somebody yeah, yeah, yeah. that seems to be yeah. something she gets up she to she drive her tra- trailer all around Alaska <laughs> that's her MO yeah. I love it yeah but I I liked it because Again, as we said last week, the small town feel, everybody being connected, it would feel very random to just have, like, the Anchorage, you know, I'm the guy from Anchorage, and I'm here to tell you, yeah, I need my case. Well, but, and and in the way that the show is either playing with or just kind of embodying, like, classic tropes, like, this is also, like, the police, like, story, like, oh, like, something is happening in the small town, and, like, here come the feds in to, like, take the case away from us, so we've got to, like, put our minds together, because only we know this town, and we're the only ones who can actually find it out, because they're going to screw it up if uh if you know the big the big leagues gets involved and then it adds can she do it can she solve it but i think and i think what's interesting about that tension of can she do it can she solve it and why isn't she just like shipping it down the case down to anchorage is that like danvers has said repeatedly about annie k and about the researcher's case we're like this is never gonna get solved mm-hmm. ennis killed annie k we were never going to find anybody. And she seems to kind of feel the thing, this thing about the research guys. And yet something is keeping her invested in it. So I guess, I don't know, my interpretation is that her sort of pessimism is kind of an act because she doesn't want to disappoint herself or anyone else. Mm-hmm. She really cares too much. Right, right. Like right. all good cops. <laughs> <laughs> what do we make of Danvers's resistance to Leah exploring or expressing her native identity. I, that That's a really interesting character bit for Danvers because it really makes you not like her. Yeah, well, it goes, I think, a little bit to what I was saying last week, that she has this complicated, kind of messed up relationship with race and indigenous people, even though she's so embedded in it. And we didn't even mention that Peter has a, a, a native wife or yeah. girlfriend mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. a native, you know, half-native son. Um, Whose name is Darwin, which also feels pointed in feels some pointed. way. I'll say it, I kind of appreciate that the show isn't making her some white savior who completely get, mm-hmm. is cool with all races and creeds and whatnot. Because or that even feels... like the the white person who like is better at being a native than the native people are, which is also such a trope mm-hmm. in this sort of story where it's like, you know, only only like once Daniel Day-Lewis like learns how, like he is the last <laughs> of the Mohegans because he's the one who actually understands who actually things even better. It. Like he can be a better Indian than the Indians. Yeah. This feels way more true to, I think, a lot of white people's relationship with race in mm-hmm. terms of it might not be explicitly quote unquote racism of the capital R, but there are clearly assumptions and negative feelings there. That I, I love Peter's wife being like, get out of my house, get out. You, uh, 
<laughs> which yeah. seems like yeah. she's got to put put up with a lot. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I had questions about Peter's wife because an overused trope in usually cop stories is like the spouse that doesn't get how much time it's going to take. You know, like oh come and on, always like where are you? Like yeah. your family needs yeah, you too, right? Yeah. Exactly, and or, or like you, the the kid is performing on stage and sees the empty chair where dad's supposed <laughs> to be sitting or where yeah. mom's supposed to be sitting, and I thought that like her being like. No, work ends at six. And it's like, there are a lot of bodies thawing in the ice rink right now. So that might require a little overtime. They do demand some attention. Yeah. You know, but no, I think that I like the added dynamic of him having married a native woman, like, because Peter's from there. You know, he's mm-hmm. not like, he's not one of these minor transplants or whatever. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that, that the, the way the show is looking at race is intriguingly comp- complex. Yeah, yeah and we've yeah. also got Navarro, who is yeah. a product of two different worlds mm-hmm, as well, mm-hmm. um, and who has clearly some generational trauma happening. We get that flashback. Uh, you know, her mother was mentally ill, yeah. it seems, um, and her sister, it seems like, has inherited some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, she is maybe not the most stable person herself right now, but she's also kind of tapped more into you know, the spiritual side of things than Danvers is. And that seems, I don't know, like intuition is helping her, I think, and like making it easier for her to solve this case. Right, right. The cross that she finds in the car, how did that get there? Like, how supernatural is that supposed to be? Well, that's the question. And throwing that on the side of the road, that's never a good idea. Well, that's going to come back. It's going to come back. (laughs) I don't love, (laughs) I didn't love that. That's bad juju, yeah. Pretty worried, yeah. I do think Re Navarro, and something that we should keep an eye on, is the the miners versus like that big fight that happened in the bar yeah. between like that white guy who was like I don't know Clark but was like I sold him his fuck trailer right <laughs> um, right and the native people who are like they're suffering their water is sludge their water is black yeah mm-hmm. because of what's happening at the mine and it's affecting because who lives on the outer who lives on the outer communities often the most marginalized people in a community and they're the ones who are being affected by you know the miners and what seems to be this might be the climate storyline that we sort of Mm. found last episode where there's uh, really terrible things are happening because of the ills of the white people in this Mm -hmm. town. But yet, on the other hand, the miners are, that's the only thing they have to do there. (laughs) What else do you do in Ennis? And they built the school and they built the ice rink and they're funding this perhaps life-saving research, you know, like it's a really, really uneasy kind of symbiotic relationship that needn't have existed if white people had never showed up. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's the thing. <laughs> but now that they're there, I guess the mine has, can control the town by, you know, kind of like the mafia does. Like, we'll protect you. We'll give you things, but you have to be loyal to us and you cannot push back against us because... Yeah, like nice that, yeah, nice, know. nice society you right. have here. Shame <laughs> if something were to happen right. to it. Yeah. Right, exactly. And, um, you know, and I think that it's, it's fun to be in the early stages of, of watching this season in that, like, I don't know which direction the show is going to pivot. Is it about the evils of the mining company? Is it about some different evil? Is it about the evils of the research station? Is it about all of it? I, I don't know. Yeah. And it's so crazy because there's not, I mean, we're 40% of the way there, right? It's right. like we only yeah. have four it's episodes left. It's a yeah. short season. So there is a lot Which is nice because it does feel like, it feels like the show is not wasting time with red herrings, really. Mm. No, no. Everything feels purposeful. And even if certain things end up uh, just being evocative, like the spiral thing, like whatever, that's fine. I, I like the mood it's setting, but it also feels like we are efficiently moving through toward revelations and, you know, new information and all that. I do feel like we're going to probably have to wait until the very end to figure out what happened to Jody's maybe native son. What, like, yeah. that flashback, like, we know that she had... And how long ago was that? Do we know? No. Not yeah. not clear. And there was an illusion last episode with the drunk driving, and, like, maybe I sort of was like, 
Well, did Jody like kill well, her okay, husband Leah, and son? In that? Yeah. So, so Leah's sixteen. Yeah, seventeen, and her Leah's, girlfriend's okay, sixteen. Right. Uh, so Leah's seventeen. Jody Foster is sixty-one. Mm. Did she have this like young child who died when she was like forty-five? Yeah, I, no. the timeline. She was like fifty. <laughs> I'm not totally sure. I'm not. I'm not going to harp on it too much. I don't really care. It's just be. It's just. It's just kind of fun to be pedantic. It's, it's fun to be pedantic, and I, I, the timeline is. Yeah, it's a tricky. It's. It's not. The math isn't exactly mathing, but I am curious because clearly, I mean, we have the recurring image of this polar bear toy that keeps haunting. Jody, and we get a little bit in the flashback, mm-hmm. but there's more to that story, and I wonder there if it will is. play into the actual I mean, narrative she, of this. If she was responsible for an accident that killed her husband and her son, like that does, you know, explain some of the misanthropy mm-hmm. that we're getting from her. Yeah, it's maybe it's maybe a pat explanation, like I was saying before. You know, in turn, this is like a trope that I think you see a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that the show is smart in a lot of ways, and I feel like it could have maybe come up with a more creative explanation for like Danvers's whole deal. That yeah. said, that said, I want to know her whole sense. deal. Yeah, it also would make yeah. sense, and I'm curious to know her whole deal too. Yeah, um, I do too. I think I also want to know. Well, obviously, I think we're going to learn more about this Clark guy, his whole deal. But we learned a little bit about, like, he was seen naked outside the the station once, right? Yeah, well, his butt, all everything yeah. hanging out. They right, said, right, right, <laughs> and and that, that delivery driver says that when he went there and found the place empty, he thought he saw someone. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Dan Rosa Navarro was like, who who was it? Like, what'd you see? He's like, no, no, everyone sees things here. Mm-hmm. Everyone sees people here. So yeah, if but Clark like, is still skulking around at the the station. Right, yeah. right, exactly. Like, is he still there? Is he like um, Newt in Aliens, the, the last the last one <laughs> roaming around? Or he's, or the driver saw whatever monster is out there. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, yeah. that would be that would be a very horror thing, too, if there's like a gradual pan up to the ceiling and there's Clark like, <laughs> right, right. Grabbed onto right. it. Well, exactly. I hope he's fixing a light up there because they keep flickering in that station. <laughs> because whatever it's happened to these people, they tore their eyes out. They their eardrums ran, are they, ruptured. Their eardrums are ruptured. They They're were so scared that they, they ran out into the Arctic tundra without shoes on. And when Danvers and Peter are kind of doing her Danvers' like routine of like, okay, that's not the right question. What's the right question? Start asking questions. Okay. Uh, polar bear. The doors don't lock, right? To avoid accidents. Okay. It comes in. The men panic. They run out. And they undress. Why? Paradoxical undressing. People with severe hypothermia, they feel hot, they undress. You've been studying. All right, keep asking. They arrive at, what would you be so scared of that you would run out like that? And so, like... And the answer is a strong woman in her 60s taking control of her own sexuality. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Um, I don't know. I I, I had sort of predicted last week that it was a group of people who were responsible for this. And I just, I don't know. I'm increasingly like, could one person have uh, inspired or, you know, these researchers to basically run out into the cold and die? You know, I don't know. Yeah, I. It would have to be a pretty formidable person in some in some respect. Maybe they have trained polar bears at their disposal. We don't um, know. There you go. That that could be it. Yeah. yeah uh, and um, where did all those uh, caribou go? Where did where did all those the the uh, from the first scene? Yeah, I don't right? know if that's just scene setting or if it actually matters. I know. Yeah, I'm like, what? And that and that person, that man who was yeah. going to shoot them. Where is he? Like, we don't know anything about him. Well, yeah, and like. Spec- 
Rose is, Rose has basically said this place is sick. It is at the nexus of a dying world and it's being torn apart. Like, I don't think there's any nature is healing vibes <laughs> about, <laughs> about this. And I think the caribou were just maybe saw what was coming and we're like, we're, like, we're, we're going to, we're, yeah. we're out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bye. It's been good. But yeah, I like the sort of elemental mystery. I, I the, the earth kind of like groaning under the weight of all these bad people. And, and like rebelling yeah. against the people that are exploiting it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, you know, these researchers who are trying to extract something life-saving and in, in some ways good, except like you said, Hillary, maybe they took it too far. Too far, but, yeah. yeah. Which, is, which people yeah. often do. Yes, yeah. what if science, but too much. <laughs> Still watching, we'll be back in just a moment. And when we return, a conversation with Christopher Eccleston. We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who will only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then, I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. We've said this a couple of times, uh, but Liz Danvers butted more than just heads with Captain Connolly, if you know what I (laughs) mean. speaking of butts, we saw a lot of Christopher Eccleston. Christopher Eccleston, who's done great work on HBO in the past and in The Leftovers Mm. and everything like that. So it was really exciting that we got to talk to him about True Detective Night Country here in part two as the mystery unfolds. So listen to that conversation and enjoy. I'd love to know, now we're sort of two episodes into uh, True Detective Night Country, uh, how have you been uh, Have you been paying attention to the audience reaction or sort of the fan reaction to the first episode, like mm. after it came out? What was your response? Yeah, I, yeah, I was at the premiere in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. so I saw a reaction, I saw an audience reaction, and also I saw episode one myself, and I'm not somebody who watches a lot of drama, and I'm certainly not somebody who watches myself. Fortunately, I wasn't in that episode. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I'm aware of the reviews and the reaction to it has been extraordinary. And there's a five-star review in my own newspaper today, The Guardian. So, yeah, it's been overwhelmingly positive. I'd love to go way back to the beginning. Were you a True Detective fan going into Night Country when you were cast? In the I wasn't. I, I, I have to confess, I'm not somebody who watches a lot of drama because I spend my life making it. I'm hypercritical. 
Mm. And I like to switch off from work. So I'm more of a documentary and news sport and music person. <laughs> so mm. um, I'm aware of it. I'm aware of how highly regarded it is. I'm aware that there was a critical fall away. Um, I think that's fair to say. I don't think the audience reaction and the critical reaction was as strong after series one. Mm. And it sounds to me like what was needed was um, a reconfiguration of it. And uh, with with Issa mm. and Jody, that's what, it, I think it's rejuvenated the franchise from what I can tell. I, so that's what I felt on the set. It's what attracted me to the project was that feminine power mm. and approach. No, totally. And you can tot- you can feel it and and see it, particularly um, with Jodie Foster. Um, and your your characters, uh, Connolly's relationship with Liz Danvers, we see is a quite quite a complicated, uh, yeah. interesting relationship. Can you talk a little bit about how much you knew um, going into filming that you would have this sort of romantic yet also adversarial yet also you know boss employee relationship with Jodie Foster's Liz Danvers yeah I mean I think it's something that happens a great deal in the workplace isn't it <laughs> um and the, the relationship has gone on for the the relationship if that's what we can call it uh has gone on for a for a good few years so there's obviously some deep feelings there um it's implied that you know, Danvers tells herself she's there purely for the sex and only Jody would know the answer to that. But I suspect that he's in love with her. Mm. Really? I think, he's in lo- I think he's in love with her and I think he covers it. Well, that's, that's quite interesting because... And I think, yeah. I think the, the final act is to a certain extent an act of emotional revenge, but that really is spoilers. <laughs> and we've, we've got to be careful about that, I think. We can be careful, but I, I I like where your head's at, and we can definitely you know hint at what's to come. I will say that's an interesting. Uh, I think that's such an interesting take, just because Danvers sort of implies that she's only in NS Alaska because Connolly sent her away. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a very patriarchal, controlling thing that he enacts, and she, for all her power, allows to um, happen. Or, or does she allow it to happen or is she powerless because it's such a strong patriarchal structure? Can you tell me a little bit about filming and working with Jodie Foster? And I mean, and you have to have like this love scene, you know, your butt's out there. There's a, there's a lot. There's a, you're bearing yeah, a lot of yeah. yourself. Yeah. Well, fortu- I mean, fortunately for me, um, Jodie and myself are exactly the same generation. So we came through doing sex scenes when before... Me too, before the advent of intimacy coaches. And so we'd gone the same route, albeit in different genders. So we we were very versed in how to behave mm. towards another actor. And so it was just, um, it was very funny, really, because the first day I met Jodie and Issa in person, because I was cast, and then I flew over there. And we were discussing the sex scene, we were just discussing the relationship, and I lent on a rehearsal table and it smashed in two and I fell on my back <laughs> which made Issa and Jody hysterical with laughter and then me and Jody laid out debris of this smashed table and my 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 humiliation had a photograph and to be <laughs> honest that that did the job for us that gave us the shorthand because we realized we had exactly the same sense of humor um, and same approach you know take the work seriously but don't take yourself seriously at all which really helps in a sex scene Mm. And then we did have a great intimacy coach, you know, because that's a 
great positive thing in the in the, in the industry. And we had a very strong. I think sometimes the issue with sex scenes is the writer doesn't or can't or won't write exactly what because if you if you if you have a sex scene between two characters, it's it's there not for titillation as far as I'm concerned. It's there to tell a story about the relationship. And because mm-hmm. Issa had written that, and there's a scene in episode one, a sex scene uh, with Navarro, which there's there's a unity and there's an echo between those two scenes. And it tells a tale about, predominantly it tells a tale about female sexuality. So what was freeing about that was we weren't, that we, there was no titillation, it was narrative. We're telling yeah. a story about a physical, an emotional relationship physically. Mm. And it was a lot of fun. I feel you know you're spot on um, in terms of um, these sort of scenes telling a story and giving us more insight. Yeah. Um, yeah, the only reason it should be there is to enlighten you about the characters, not to titillate. Um, mm. But well, I, I was very fortunate because I was doing, obviously I was doing a sex scene with a woman and it was being shot and directed by a woman. You know, there's a great deal of vulnerability involved in something like that. I have hang-ups about my appearance physically, just like anybody else, but there's, I've always found generally working with a female in charge, the vulnerable element to your work is easier to, to do. But also the changes in the industry have really helped. I do want to sort of unpack further. You, you talk about the sort of like patriarchal stru- struggle and this this season is so sort of um, led by women, run by women, and your your cop. It's sort of unclear by episode two how much we should trust Connolly, whether or not uh-huh. he really has Danvers' best interest in heart. I mean, without giving too much away, how do you suspect the audience should feel about him at this juncture? I think she should probably see him through Danvers' his eyes. I think the guide should be. Jody's brilliant performance, actually. I think, how would it feel to be in a relationship with that man? How is she observing him? What is she saying to him? And I would try not to guide an audience whether to trust or not trust a character, because when you play a character, you try not to judge them. Mm. You try to just play them. We all self-justify, don't we? Everything we do, we (laughs) justify it to ourselves. So... I want to leave that to the audience. It'll be interesting to see their response. Mm. You've been in a, a, a you know a, a bunch of a bunch of shows and projects, and some of them which are quite supernatural and kind of terrifying in nature. I think The Leftovers is a great example. I would say Twenty Eight Days yeah. Later, um, but this has a whole new flavor. I mean, we've got this corpsicle of all these naked men screaming and clawing their eyes out. It makes a change from naked women, doesn't it? It does. It does. And I was just about to ask, can you talk a little bit about yeah. the horror elements and even the supernatural elements um, in this show and uh, as compared to other things that you've you've been involved in in the past? Well, I've worked in a, quite a lot of genre stuff. I'm not as, you know, I, 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 I've not seen the finished piece yet. I've only seen, I've only seen episode one, so I've not seen the whole, the whole show. But I found it, and as, as somebody who doesn't watch a lot of television drama, really thrilling and that there were so many we let a lot of hairs go in that first first episode and i love that stuff when it's done well when it's woven into a story rather than just for shock value 
And the opening sequence with the bison, oh. it's just fantastic. And the polar bear, all that stuff. I mean, yeah. And I think what anchors, what always anchors um, special effects and horror is the stuff around it. So you've got Jodie Foster anchoring all of that with her very truthful performance. The intelligence and truth of her performance makes you buy the more genre-like elements of it. Mm. All of the performances. You need realism to sit alongside that kind of thing, which you had with Killian Murphy in 28 Days Later, for instance. Mm. The truth of his performance in that made you believe in all the zombie elements. That is actually, that's a great corollary. Yeah, the groundedness, yeah. right, of the relationships yeah. and the actors, yeah. it lets you explore these other supernatural elements. Yeah. I got to I gotta ask, are you rooting for your uh, your boy Killian on the award circuit yes. for Oppenheimer? I am, yeah. Because <laughs> I, I, I worked with him right at the beginning of his career. That was his big break 28 days later. Yeah. Uh, and he was such a gentleman then. And I've bumped into him a number of times down the years and he's not changed. Very modest, very unassuming, very decent um, man. I guess to bring it back, bring it back to uh, Night Country, uh, it it leads me to sort of watch to watch these episodes multiple times just to figure out if I'm missing anything or because I'm trying to solve the mystery just like everybody else. And I don't yeah. know, I you know you you said you haven't seen every episode, but I'm sure you've seen every script. Is uh, without again giving anything too much away, is there anything that we should be paying close attention to? You know, I know that the opening sequence, the opening credit sequence, seems to have some clues. You should pay attention to every, absolutely everything because it all pays off. <laughs> mm. That's the beauty of it. There's no, un, it all it all by the end, and it's going to be hard for people to under, believe, but by the end, it's all, it all ties together. So yeah. pay attention to everything because it's all there if you look closely. Okay, because that doesn't always, that's not always the case with yeah. these detective shows where there yeah. are red herrings, there are things that are thrown in there just to mm -hmm. get you off not the path. This, not this time. Thank you so much, Chris, for, for stopping by. This has been a really great and insightful interview. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Still watching. We'll be back in just a minute. When we return, we'll narrow down the suspects with our predictions. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. All right, it's that time in the episode when we have to make a prediction for who done it. We have one week's worth of predictions banked. Yeah. By the end, whoever is closest or most consistent or, you know, e e one of us could have predicted correctly on the first episode and then c incorrectly predicted for the rest of the season, but they could still win. They could still win. Yeah. That's, those are and, the rules of the game. And they win an IC. Because the rules yeah. are arbitrary and we're yeah. making them up right now. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Whose line is it anyways? Um, <laughs> all right, Chris, I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay. So I said Hank last week and while... We, it's, I was certainly right about his character. He seems too stupid to have pulled off. <laughs> yeah. If you can fall for the Russian mail-ordered bride trick. You're probably not responsible for the deaths of, you know, eight scientists. So I'm going to pivot, and this might be a little controversial, but I 
I'm like, okay, uh, Annie's brother. He, Ooh. Annie's brother. What's going on there? Oh, okay. Yeah, because he has obviously a good reason. His sister was brutally murdered. She was involved with Clark, a scientist guy. That mm-hmm. is enough of a reason, um, a motive to be like seek revenge, and. Uh, he's popped up a little bit. We keep revisiting him, and he seems like a wonderful person. Mm -hmm. But I would get why he would want to murder all those scientists. That's a good guess, I think, too, because that is sort of a classic mystery thing where, like, the answer is not is somebody who we've met, but yeah. it's not necessarily a main character. It's it's something that I mean, this is something that Issa Lopez said. Did I mention that I interviewed her? <laughs> um, this is something that she said also is like you can solve the mystery by watching the show. Like the show, the the mystery, the answer is somebody who you've seen from the beginning. She okay. said. Okay, so good to that me. is it's not like oh, which somebody- is. I mean, that was like my that was my complaint about the first season of True Detective, which is like you can't really solve the mystery by watching the show because the answer turns out to be like this like rando guy. Yeah, right. Which and, feels like yeah. cheating. But yeah. now that we're in this closer community, yeah, it's somebody. It, it's Julian Nichols's son. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which yeah. like also, you know, it's it's possible to have come to that conclusion, but it's like a wild. So yeah, yeah. maybe mm-hmm. it's something like that. But yes, I yeah. I like where you're headed. That's where I'm placing my bets on. Okay. Yeah, and yeah. his brother. If. Clark is responsible for Annie Kay, which I feel like, you know, maybe that's so obvious that it won't be true. But if it is true, then I think you are on the money that the Salal scientists are dead as a result of a revenge Yeah, revenge killing. Okay. I think that I agree with that, except I have a twist on it. Mm -hmm. Now that we know that Clark at least did not die out in the snow— Maybe he's dead elsewhere. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But that he had this relationship. We don't know yet if the relationship turns south. We can infer, but we don't know. I think that one of the other Salal guys killed Annie Kay out of jealousy or something. Um. And then when we see Clark oh, at the Clark. beginning, oh. he's pretending. He's scaring them. Mm-hmm. Oh, when he does like his that. shaky thing? Yeah. When and he, so he's the and one who he chases it. Yeah. So he's alive somewhere because he was getting revenge for Annie's death. Oh, wow. Okay, so now we think Clark is, well, not a hero, but Clark is maybe not a... An avenging the, angel an or avenging something. Angel. Okay. Yeah. I like I like that, too, yeah. Because, mm. like, you know, they got the tattoos. They were really in love. Yeah. They had a fuck trail. <laughs> 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 when two people love each other very much. <laughs> okay. they, yeah, they get a horrifying nightmare <laughs> cave. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, one in the nook, you know? And <laughs> matching, like, pedophile tattoos. <laughs> Great. True love. Perfect. Um, Wait, Hillary, Hillary yeah. You, yeah, you got to lock in a prediction. Okay, so if if I'm going to—I'm going to stick the—I'm going to stick with Clark being responsible for Annie because okay. I just—you know, it's the boyfriend. Like, yeah. I don't— Yeah, it's often the boyfriend. It's the butler, it's the boyfriend. Um, But for the scientists— I mean, Fiona Shaw probably doesn't actually have anything to do with anything. <laughs> but I still like the idea. Like, she's so cultured and refined. Like, what if, I don't know. Maybe maybe she is still somehow the mastermind of, like, this, like, revenge scheme. Um, yeah. Because I don't know. I want her to be there for some reason. Yeah, her maybe her she's kind of like Holly Hunter in um, Top of the Lake where she, maybe she, like, leads a group of people mm. and her group went out and did it. I like that. Mm. Yeah, almost a little culty, but not quite culty. culty. Either yeah. that or it's the drunk lady who screamed a lot. <laughs> who blows yeah, uh, yeah. uh If, the, if the show is really tight, then <laughs> yeah. yes, that drunk lady will come back <laughs> at some point. Yeah. <laughs> That does it for this episode of Still Watching. As ever, you can find me on social media at Rylaws, R-I-L-A-W-S. And you can find me on social media at Christress. And me at Hillabuster. This has been Still Watching from Vanity Fair. Our producer is Emily Elias. We had production help from Peyton Hayes. 
We had technical assistance from Gabe Quiroga. We were mixed by Jake Loomis. Steven Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Alexis Quadrado. We will be back next Sunday for part three of True Detective Night Country. Looking forward to seeing you then. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.